Welcome to Impasto, a podcast about two art school ladies discussing the fun bits of art history. I'm Michelle. And I'm Paige. And we are not professional art historians, and this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Suggestions and comments are welcomed via email at impasto.pod at gmail.com. Who I got for us this week <laughs> is Romaine Brooks. Mm-hmm. She was born in 1874 and died in 1970. I see you, Queen. Right. Long-lived Queen. <laughs> right? Almost 100 years old, which is so impressive. That is impressive. Right? Romaine Brooks, the daughter of a wealthy, unbalanced woman, estranged from her husband before Romaine's birth. Okay, and- pause. <laughs> <laughs> a what woman? Wealthy, unbalanced. I mean, <laughs> I would, I, just, Wow. What a way to describe her. She she was crazy. Her mother mm-hmm. did some weird things to Romaine, like oh. mentally. Like she was physically violent. She'd beat her. She had a brother, apparently, and the brother was adored and loved. But Romaine mm-hmm. Brooks was like this just awful. She didn't want a daughter. She made her dress up in her brother's clothes. She would beat her. She would verbally assault her. And so apparently the brother had some sort of mental illness as well. I'm not sure if he was like the neurotypical. I think he might have had autism the way that he's described in her journals. And it's funny because, you know, Romaine Brooks, she never held a grudge against her brother, even though that was usually the Obviously, Like if he had like an episode or was upset, the mother would blame Romaine Brooks. Yeah, yeah, and she just she's crazy. She she saw things. She probably had schizophrenia. She was oh dear, unhinged, unbalanced, so, unbalanced. unbalanced. Yes, <laughs> Romaine was scarred from lack of affection and acceptance, and mm-hmm. so she actually inherited a huge family fortune in 1902 that mm-hmm. granted her independence. So she studied in Rome where she then met a group of avant-garde artists, writers, and intellectuals with whom she associated in Capri, Paris, and the French Riviera. She remained aloof from all artistic trends, painting in her palette of black, white, and grays, which were haunting portraits of the blessed and the troubled of socialites and intellectuals. She lived most of her life in Paris, where she was a leading figure of an artistic counterculture of upper-class Europeans and American expatriates, many of whom were creative, bohemian, and homosexual. Oh. Brooks crafted an androgynous appearance that challenged conventional ideas of how women should look and behave, and these ideas extended to many of the portraits she painted in the 1920s, which are some of her best-known works. Mm -hmm. Her exploration of gender and sexuality in many of her portraits led to renewed interest in her work in the 1980s, and her powerful images are still compelling to audiences today. Early in her career... Brooks adopted a muted palette primarily of black, white, and various subtle shades of gray, sometimes with highlights of ochre, umber, or red, strongly reminiscent of James McNeil Whistler, whose paintings she admired. Crushy old lady painting. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. She dressed a certain way. She dressed in, in known as dandy, so the top hat the the petticoat with the collar she had a cane collared shirts 
she very much dressed like i guess what we think of like gentlemen so have you ever seen like bridgerton have you ever seen that netflix i have not seen bridgerton oh darn well that is who i would relate them the way the men dress or Mm -hmm. no miss uh lady danbury i think is her name i i'm just now watching the second season and she wears a top hat and like these coats which i guess would is very similar to Romaine, Romaine Brooks. So during this time, from what I understand, is full of the homosexual orientation. So they were challenging the way that women could dress. Because during mm-hmm. this time, they were like, women should only wear dresses. And women artists, especially lesbians, were like, fuck no, I want to wear yeah. pants. Yeah, I want to look like a man. I want people to know I am a lesbian. No doubts. <laughs> no doubts. None whatsoever. <laughs> The pants yes. are the symbol. <laughs> yes. I do believe Romaine Brooks was married when she was younger. I think it was with the encouragement of her mother. And then mm-hmm. after like a year, she was like, yeah, no, this ain't working. I'm going to divorce you. Goodbye. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so she, she was went... in Paris, though. Yes. Yes. Okay. So she was born in Italy, even though she was an American. And then when she turned, I want to say like 14, 16, somewhere in her teens, she then moved to to france and that's where she started studying the arts she went to a boarding school i want to say like she was mm-hmm. shipped away which she was like okay no problem and she went back to her mother and they bounced around a lot and that's where she got some of her terrible memories and then you know once she got that fortune i believe from like her father or grandfather she was like i'm out and she actually funded herself to go study like in Paris have her own apartment have her own group of friends where she would then do private portraits of them and they would paint each other they were friends they were lovers it was like a fun little mix of everything in between (laughs) (laughs) it's Paris yes city of love (laughs) yes so if you look at the pictures I sent you Mm -hmm. one is a self portrait and one is of a nurse during the world war the self-portrait is like i was saying there's her in her top hat short bob haircut very boy style dark palettes nothing but like grays and blacks and serving yes serving looks so during this time portraiture wasn't very popular she kind of just did her own thing which kudos to you romaine brooks uh it had actually lost a bit of its like fancy no one really cared about portraiture no one cared about like art history at this point it was the 19 like 20s yeah Um, they would go if they wanted a portrait done they would go and get their picture taken exactly so there was really no point in painting it so she was really doing her own thing in that point of view And as well as, like, her palette, she decided to use a color that was mostly, like, a male-dominated palette, right? Most women, I would say, tended towards colorful, even pastel colors, those those typical feminine assumed palettes and she was like no i'm about to do these harsh angles and i'm gonna win at it and she did that brings me to the next photo which is of the nurse and it's an interesting painting because there was some discussion about it about who is the painting everyone's like is that romaine brooks no this is while this is an androgynous woman in this painting it is not her many people believe it was ida ida rubenstein yes Hmm. 
So she was an actress at this time, and they may or may not have had a relationship together. She was mm-hmm. also someone who challenged that the gendered look of things. So they believed mm-hmm. that was her muse for this painting. Mm-hmm. And it's it's really cool. So she's wearing the nurse's top hat. So that's how you know she's a nurse. There's a city burning in the background. You can see the smoke billowing to the right. And she also has that collared nurse's outfit under her coat. And the only reason so many people are like, no, that's a woman is because of the nurse's symbol and the fact of the sharp V cut of her dress. Because mm-hmm. if you look at her face, right, it looks very boyish. There's a sharp jawline, small lips, beady eyes, pointed nose. That's not what was standard beauty during this time, right? Mm-hmm. You think of like the the pinup girls uh, with their curled hair. If you look at other propaganda for Red Cross during this time, they used voluptuous, youthful, beautiful women like the standard beauty, right? Mm-hmm. Heart-shaped face, full cheeks, large eyes, pretty mouth, full smile. This woman has seen some some trauma, right? She's right. very ashen. She's looking off in the distance. She's very thin. Mm-hmm. And no part of her is like, yeah, I want to be in Red Cross. Because, again, during the First World War, Red Cross was a volunteer work where mm-hmm. women could go into battle without having any repercussions to their reputation, right? Mm-hmm. Because it was controlled by church nuns things like that it was a good cause however you know in order to get people to come to their side they were like this is our propaganda you're gonna have so much fun you're gonna travel you're gonna do like easy stuff it's gonna be it's kind of like study abroad but for like nurses war yeah exactly exactly oh But Romaine Brooks did like this really interesting spin because she was actually portraying the realities of it, right? Mm -hmm. Like, war is not pretty. You are not going to be looking, you're not going to have a full face of makeup every day tending to these wounded soldiers. (laughs) Yeah. You're going to be looking rough. And she did that. She was just like, this is the reality of it. And it was, it was really interesting to, I guess, reiterate how Romaine Brooks was like, I'm going to do my own thing and I'm going to stand out for it. And she did. And I loved it. So that's another reason to love Romaine Brooks. (laughs) and her like middle finger to the man like Uh, well yeah she's like i'm gonna wear what i want i'm gonna paint what i want in whatever colors i want exactly and that's like i guess the beauty of giving women money like what are you gonna do with that huge trust fund you've got and she was like i'm gonna go hang out with my friends and I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to dress the way I want. I'm going to talk the way I want. I'm going to paint whatever I want. And you can't say shit because I'm wealthy. <laughs> yeah. I would love to know, like, what she was like in the 60s. Like, during the free love, like, movements and the hippiness, like, of everything. Like, I would love to know, like, what she thought of that as an old woman. Right. Like, getting to see that living through two world wars and Vietnam and, mm-hmm. like, all of that. She saw great deal. I mean, she was in her 30s during the first one, first World mm-hmm. War. She was in her, what, 60s in the, during the second one? Mm-hmm. Oh, man. She was like the pioneer, right? I mean, she was mm-hmm. the original first generation of the LGBTQ community mm-hmm. making that stance, right? I mean, she mm-hmm. was one of the first known ones that was 
fighting it. She was standing up for her rights in her own way. Obviously, power only went so far during this time, but to see it having a first representation, documented, almost actual documented that they were, this is what they were doing. There's not exactly art history. <laughs> from like the 1500s of a potentially yeah. gay or lesbian individual being like i'm gonna paint this that that didn't exactly we don't have a lot of resources to back yeah. it up whereas romaine brooks we do it's like you cannot deny what, what's happening in this yeah. one yeah it's she's really cool yeah i mean we do see i feel like a lot of homoerotic like males in art history like given it might be the current reading into said pieces like Caravaggio like, but you don't see that a lot in women you know because women weren't in the arts and until the 19th century and the 20th century they actually got to be seen and then in seeing it they're like oh no we're gonna push it even further we're gonna do absolutely whatever we want <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah I love Romaine Brooks Yes. There's a lot more to her. You should look up more of her paintings in your yes. own time. But for now, those are the two faves. Yes. The, she, oh yeah, awesome. Because I remember, I think, the one of her, and it's like this woman in this dark coat, and it's got the, like, the rim of flowers, and it's like going into the grass, and it's just really just awesome <laughs> all around. All around a good time. All right, you ready for some trivia? Yes, queen. All righty, Michelle. This is one for you. I found it special for you. What type of pottery is known for its burnt hair designs? Hair? Yeah. Burnt hair designs. I can literally see it in my head, but I don't know what it because I know what you're talking about, but I don't know the actual name of it. It is horsehair raiku. Oh, okay. Is a method of decorating pottery through the application of horsehair and other dry carbonaceous material to the heated ware. The burning carbonaceous material creates smoke patterns and carbon trails on the surface of the heated ware that remain as decoration after the ware cools. That's cool. So I think that this is getting a little bit more popular as people, I guess do their pottery more on like social media and yeah. like their processes because mm -hmm. I see a lot of people like putting vessels in like trash cans and then just like throwing stuff on top of it yep. to Sawdust give it and, yep. to give it that look so this is the original method mm -hmm. horsehair reiku like the idea of the carbonaceous material maybe the French revolution that, o that overthrew King Charles of France was commemorated which iconic artwork <laughs> uh viva la vida the coldplay album <laughs> is that this is it coldplay <laughs> I don't know. Uh, um liberty leading the people by who delacroix <laughs> okay you got the right <laughs> is it a coldplay album i know it's viva la vida mm-mm live in la vida lo oh wait <laughs> mm -mm. no <laughs> it is coldplay viva la vida oh. or death and all his friends Yep, it's a Coldplay album. I was right. It's that painting. Nice. nice. Liberty leading the people. Okay, well. Name the artist who painted The Wanderer Above the Sea Fog. A painting that portrays the romanticist <laughs> art movement perfectly. It is the poster child of the romanticist movement. You said floating on the sea? 
wanderer above the sea fog. If I described it to you, would that help you? It's a man standing above the sea fog. <laughs> okay, it's a guy standing on a cliff. He's got his go. back to you. He's a blonde guy, dark coat. He's got a cane. And he's okay. looking out off of the cliff into... Fog. Sea of fog. <laughs> <laughs> you would recognize it if you've seen it. it I do know what you're talking about, actually. It's often called just The Wanderer. It's, it's, his name is Casper. Yes, Casper David Friedrich. There we go. <laughs> He's also known for his just gorgeous, gorgeous paintings of um, ruins. I love those. Since you're talking about artists who represent art movements, mm. name the artist who represents the minimalist art movement. They painted the, well, this is basic, black painting. <laughs> That's the name of it. Black painting. You know, I saw this this question <laughs> and I skipped it because <laughs> I didn't know the answer. <laughs> Who is it? I do not know. <laughs> Frank Stella. Nope. He's like an American painter, sculptor, and printmaker noted for his work in the areas of minimalism and post-painterly abstraction. See, that's not... That's not a movement or style that I particularly care for. Like, I like a lot of Rothko's work because it's the scale and it's the color and there is intent there. Looking at it, looking at the size, I don't hate it because they're big. He used a house painter's brush to produce white stripes. Wow. Okay. Okay. No, I think he did the black stripes. Working and the white is the negative space. Oh, 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 you're right, you're right, you're right. Working you know freehand, what? he applied enamel paint directly onto the canvas to create two seemingly identical sets of black stripes. Gotcha. Okay, you know what? I don't hate it because it is, like, very geometrical. It's very precise. I hate it. <laughs> Ooh. I feel like I'm on drugs when I stare Ooh. at it because of, like, the way it's shrinking. Ooh, no, his colors are very bright. Something. Okay, no. I thoroughly enjoy these. Okay. Okay. So Michelle, who who is the French illustrator who is basically the poster child, Badum Tiss, of the Art Nouveau movement and representation in commercial advertisements in France? In the Art Nouveau movement. You know what? That's real specific. You gave me a lot of a lot of information, friend. He's like the only one that people know. <laughs> so. You know what? I'm going a, I'm to a pass on this because Michelle don't know. <laughs> it is Alphonse Mucho. You don't recognize that stuff? I've Art never. I've seen like paintings inspired by him, but I've actually never seen his work. So well, that isn't going to change today because I'm not, <laughs> I'm not discussing him. <laughs> today I'm going to be talking about Emil Joachim Constant Puyo, also known as just Constant Puyo. He was born November of 1857 and died in October of 1933. So again, we have a long-lived one. Uh, he was a French photographer. 
and he was active in the late 19th and early 20th century. He was a leading advocate of the pictorialist movement in France, and he served as a president of the Photo Club of Paris. Puyo was born to a prominent family in Marillais. I think that's how you say it. I do not speak French. His father, Edmund Puyo, was also a painter, an amateur archaeologist, and a politician who served as the mayor of Morlaix in the 1870s. So his dad loved the arts, loved learning, obviously, and was mayor. I mean, doesn't get better than that. <laughs> so he comes from a very artsy family, a wealthy artsy family. He's a guy. He has all his doors open, free to sprint through them, full speed. Must be nice. Wouldn't know. <laughs> but... Unfortunately for a lot of people, World War I is a thing. Mm -hmm. And he mm -hmm. actually studied at a very fancy, I would assume, a military school, like a Colet Polytechnique. He then joined the French Army as an artillery officer, rising to the rank of commandant during his career and commanding a squadron at the School of Artillery at La Fire. And he served with the French army in Algeria during the 1880s, so kind of pre-World War One, And this is kind of where he starts to have that moment of what exactly is photography. Uh, we've talked a little bit about the pictorialists and about how they were basically just a group of anybody that picked up a camera. But there were two very different sects of what what photography should be is it a science where you push it to the absolute limit to get the most clear image possible or is it something that you're supposed to manipulate to get a type of photograph that you have altered in some sort of way to make it be seen as true art he was on that side of it that you needed to manipulate it to make the image something more than just a photograph because then you weren't, then you weren't doing anything special so when you say manipulate, do you mean physical placement of objects within your frame? Or do you mean like technology going in and editing and being like, let me just crop that out real quick. I'm talking like using the wrong chemicals on purpose to get like okay. a blurry or ethereal image. Very similar to Mr. Heinrich Kuhn, who we talked about a little bit earlier, like that soft focus, the mm -hmm. like you're doing something intentional to receive an intentional type of effect. Like so using like a filter, I guess gotcha. would be a good way to 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 say that. In 1894, he joined the Photo Club of Paris, and it had been founded by Maurice Baquette, and he helped to organize a salon for the club. So a salon being a show. <laughs> we don't call them salons anymore. Uh, he wrote several articles for the club's bulletin, which was a version of photo session, which is what we talked about last week, establishing himself as a chief theoretician of the French pictorialist movement. Mm -hmm. And in 1896, two years later, he did publish his first book, um, Notes sur la Photographie Artistique, which explained how photography could be used to create works of art. 
So he retired from the military in 1902, and he was able to devote himself more fully to photography. So he retired as the photo club president in 1926, where he returned to his home in Morlaix and died. What's interesting the most is his work. When you sit down and you look at it, and you look at it in the context of other work at the time. So he believed that if For a photograph to be considered art, it must create a beauty independent of the subject. So the photograph itself, in a way, needed to be beautiful regardless of the sitter. Yes, you can photograph a beautiful person, but that doesn't make the photograph beautiful. He believed that art photographers should be more concerned with the beauty rather than the fact of the image he wasn't big on still lives he wasn't big on landscapes but he was about the subjects of the images that he was creating he considered the manipulation of a photograph to be an expression of individuality and believed that manipulation was necessary to eliminate the sense that the photograph was produced by an unemotional machine. That's a very big issue during this time and when photography first begins to become a thing is the camera is nothing. It's about the intent of the person taking the picture. Common themes in Puyo's photographs include women in landscapes, feminine figures in various poses, and various aspects of the late 19th century Parisian life. Everything is very art nouveau. Like, from the way that the characters are dressed to the intention behind the folds of the like the drapery that they're wearing you can tell like looking at his work and then looking at Alphonse Mucha (laughs) the king (laughs) of advertisement illustrations at the time especially in Paris like you can see where he's pulling that inspiration from so his other known works also mirror things that were happening in fine art at the time like impressionism there is one that is credited as looking almost heavily influenced by an edward munch piece i have sent you three images right i've sent you three let me look let me look yes yes there we are okay so the first one that i want to talk about is it's the oldest piece that i'm going to talk about the woman standing behind the curtain with the knife Really? Yes. The title of this piece is Vengeance. <laughs> looking at you, Rob. <laughs> Again, we're we're looking at an allegory of some sort. We're storytelling, the drapery, the lighting, the costuming, just the amount of work that went into this photograph alone is just phenomenal to think about because working with photography back then again like i've said a million times i will say it again it's a science (laughs) like they had to really know what they were doing especially to get this type of effect because the light is so clear and there you can just see so much into the narrative of this piece So the next one I want you to look at is Women in Veils. So it's the two women. They look like they're maybe reading a book. They're, (laughs) I don't know. They're in this beautiful white veil in front of this dark background. And there's like backlighting behind them that's like illuminating the veils. Very ethereal. 
very spooky. Are they going to put a spell on me? Or what are they doing? What are they doing? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so spooky, like the shapes, the the level of tone difference in this piece is just beyond anything that is happening in 1899 besides them. And then the very last one that I've sent you is a 1903 piece. So and this one here, in my opinion, looks very, very similar to a lot of Art Nouveau imagery of women because she's in this hooded cape kind of cloak-ish thing the way that it's falling off her and she's in this natural landscape it is pulling back into all of these stories that are getting told at the time like that revamping at the turn of the century into the occult and into all of that type of storytelling and the lore really starts to get shown in imagery at this time so I would love to know what Miss Vengeance is doing I would really love to know, like, the story behind that piece because there is something happening. I'm actually going to wrap around back to what you were saying about the light that just kind of never occurred to me mm-hmm. in 1899. So today, if you want to shine some light, it's so easy. It's in your hand, all right? It's yeah. just your phone. So I just, my question is, you know, how much work went into the placement of the light, finding the light source for like, you know, getting that picture. For me, I'm like, oh, it's a, it's a light. The, yeah, it's a whatever. ring light in the background. Right? right. But now that you've pointed it out, I'm like, oh my God, you're right. Well, I know that especially like photography nowadays is so easily accessible and it just doesn't even occur to us. We're so used to being able to take a picture and immediately look at it the level of work that would go into taking even film photography. People don't realize how difficult that truly is, let alone a gum bichromate print where you got to know starch levels. Yeah. And the idea that these images are also considered objects because there is no negative. Like it might just be on a piece of paper and that's the only one that's ever going to exist. And it fades over time because it was such an experimental time in photography. So many things about it that make it art. Like he had to sit down and and think about the light. He had to think about the technicality of every shred of these images. But yeah, that's him. I strongly suggest looking at his work. Like, it, I suppose that is it for this week. <laughs> oh yeah, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. Please check out our socials on Instagram and TikTok. Send us suggestions at impostopod at gmail.com. Yes, and we're available hopefully shortly on Apple Podcasts, where you can find us primarily on Anchor and Spotify. We'll catch y'all around. Give us five stars. Give us five <laughs> stars, please. We beg of you. <laughs>